Sunday, October the 16th. Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. We're following this series called Detox, recognizing that as a culture, we are in a state of uh, shock or trauma or stress. There is a collective sense in which everybody is a little bit more stressed, a little bit more anxious, a little bit more on the edge than perhaps uh, hitherto. The war in Ukraine, the cost of living crisis, the death of the Queen, all on the back of COVID and so on, creates a collective sense of agitation. And if you listen to the news, if you watch what's going on in the leadership of our land, uh, all of those kind of things, it just instills in us a sense of unease because there is a lot of uncertainty. And Psalm 23, right at the heart of the Bible, is this psalm that's often been uh, gone back to for people of faith and without faith at times of need or stress or disorientation. And so we're right in the midst of that psalm as we journey through this autumn season. If you were to ask me to describe what Psalm 23 is, I'd, I think I'd put it like this. It's an invitation into a deeper place with him. It's an invitation into a deeper place with him. It's personal, it's real, it's relational. And if you've missed some of the series up until now, you can find them wherever you find your podcast there. It's on Apple and Spotify and Church Suite and the website and more or less everywhere, uh, everywhere else. And as we take it line by line, we want to unpack the reality of the truth that David, the author, is talking about by taking a moment in his life and using that moment in his life to help us explore and understand. So here we are this week. Um, that's not the right verse. This will be the right verse here. This one here. There you go. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The right path. Life is full of choices. More choice now than perhaps we've ever had before. There was once upon a time when if you wanted a coffee, you would be asked one question. With milk or without? And the sugar is on the table. Now when you go into a coffee shop, there are more questions than on your tax return about what kind of coffee you would like. And as they look at the, the board behind and point out which one would you like as if it's a Chinese menu rather than a drink, you have to decide whether it's one shot or two or maybe even three. And what syrup you would like. Is it caramel, vanilla or something else? Not to mention the summer or the seasonal specials, the mint mocha chip or the pumpkin spice latte at this time of year. Small, medium or large. They never talk about small, medium or large. They talk about grand, which is small, and tall, which is large, and you don't actually know what you're ordering. And then what would you like on the top? Was it sprinkles or chocolate or vanilla flakes? And then are you having in or taking away? Is it with cream or without? That's why there are sofas in many coffee shops, because most people then need to lie down. 
Everywhere you look, what was once a single choice has now become a plethora of opportunities, just like frozen chips. And we're suffering the curse of indecision. You can personalize your phone exponentially. There are things that I've been invited to personalize, like my watch, that are so, so many options that you just go, I can't even deal with all those options, so I won't do anything with it at all. That's the paralysis of choice. There was this famous moment for me in the B&Q light bulb aisle. The B&Q light bulb aisle stretches from here into eternity. There's that much choice. And I was there with one other lone individual who, who a little bit like me was pacing up and down, overwhelmed by this sense of choice. I cannot say what he blurted out here, but it encapsulated that sense of paralysis when you just don't know what to choose. Now, light bulbs is one thing. But what when it's more significant? What should I do with my life? And who should I spend it with? And should I go or should I stay? Should I do this or should I do that? And it creates an agony of the soul. The indecision, the choice is not freeing. The indecision becomes debilitating. It feeds upon itself. It eats away at our hearts and robs us of the present. Nothing is so exhausting as indecision, said Bertrand Russell. And nothing is so futile. Unlike all these toxins that we've been talking about, this this paralysis of choice poisons our soul and robs us of the life that God has for us us. It's not just before the decision either, is it? You anticipate the decision that you need to make and then you need to make it. And then after you've made that decision, you can spend almost forever wondering whether the decision you made is the right one. The buyer's remorse at an exponential level. What does Psalm 23 say in the midst of of our plethora of choice. You see, James says the same thing. You see, such a person can be double-minded. And when you're double-minded, is it this way or is it that? You become unstable, not just in the choice you're trying to make, but you become unstable in all you do. It becomes unstable in all they do. Satellite navigation is a huge gift to mankind, isn't it? It has saved many relationships, many marriages, many journeys from overwhelming, paralyzing stress. We ended up in Versailles too many times going around Paris with a caravan on the back. Even the kids knew they needed to sit very still and be very quiet if any of us were to get out alive. And then a sat-nav that told you where to go, when you needed to go it. So no longer were you anticipating the turn. Is this the turn? Is this the, you sure? Is this the turn? Is this the turn? We've taken the turn. Was that the right turn? Have we taken the right turn? Where's the next turn? Is it this turn? Suddenly, there was what we all need in the midst of this kind of choice. We all need a guide. And at the heart of Psalm 23... 
We are given this invitation to draw near to a guide who, as we saw in verse 1, is Yahweh. The name of God, so majestic, so huge, so transcendent, that they don't say it out loud. The God who is above and beyond. He's not just above and beyond, but he's imminent, involved in the detail. A God who knows who we are, who knows where we are, who knows how to get us where we should be going. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David wrote those words. And if you read David's life in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you will see again and again and again that he learned what it was to have God as the focal point of every decision. God at the center of each moment. One of the secrets of his life, this man described as uh, one after God's own heart, was his constant reference to God. That phrase, inquired of the Lord. It was as natural as breathing to David to say, so what, Lord? Which way, Lord? What now, Lord? Where now? How, Lord? When up against the Philistines or when attacked by the Amalekites or being anointed as king, he inquired of the Lord. It was his default position. But then, Almost out of a clear blue sky, we read 1 Samuel chapter 27 and verse 1. And it's a bang in the midst of the story, if you haven't noticed. You see, at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 27, Saul is the king and is pursuing David. Saul is incensed with jealousy because of David's skillfulness and popularity. And Saul is out to kill him. And David has been spending his life fleeing from Saul, who is trying to kill him. And as David has been fleeing from Saul, he's picked up all kinds of rag-tagged people along the way. 600, the Bible says, disaffected, disassociated, dissatisfied men. Are there any other kind of men? But anyway, 600 disaffected men, a motley crew of soldiers. And they've attached themselves to David with their wives and children for a sense of security. He's become their leader de facto. He's feeling responsible for their well-being, for their safety, for their feeding and their protection. And above all, he needs to keep them away from Saul and Saul's army too. So what was different? What was different in verse 1 of uh, chapter 27 of 1 Samuel? Was David tired? Was he distracted? Was he having a difficult time at home? Was it just a bad pizza? Whatever the reason, something very uncharacteristic happened. David thought to himself. Every moment had been punctuated by David inquiring of the Lord. And suddenly, you get this very dramatic turn. No. Hmm. David thought to himself. You'll find no prayers mentioned here. During this time, he wrote no psalms. David's gaze had slipped. Suddenly, all over again, he's living like an orphan. He's living like he's on his own. He's living like God isn't present. He's living like God doesn't care. He's living like God's hand has not been on his life from his earliest days. 
He's living like an orphan. Look at what he says in the rest of verse 1. One of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do, how fatalistic is this? I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do, that's catastrophizing right there, isn't it? Anyone know what I'm talking about? The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. You think it's a misprint at first. Escape to the land of the Philistines. Who was the Philistine that David had attacked? Goliath. The enemy. The best thing I can do is escape to the enemy. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I'll slip out of his hand. Who's filling David's gaze now? Where is David's focus now? Where are his thoughts? What's, whose name is on David's lips? The place that over and over and over and over again God had taken in David's life has now been replaced by Saul. David saw no hope because he saw no God. David saw no hope because he saw no God. And so David had become immersed in his own fear and this fear takes over him. I'm stuffed. I'll be destroyed. I'm on my own here. I'm left to my own resources and I know my own resources are not enough. So I'll escape to the land of the enemy. It's interesting also to note because there's another thing that goes in hand in hand through David's life is that at every turn he inquires of the Lord and he also inquires of God's people. His relationship with Samuel and Jonathan and Amalek, the priest, and so on. Ahimelech, sorry, the priest. Who, who he would always turn to in moments of big decision. He'd listen into God and he'd listen for God's voice through the community, through other people. But David cannot see God and he chooses not to listen in to God's people either. And when we... When we cannot see God and we choose to withdraw from God's people, we are very vulnerable indeed. Can you hear that? When we cannot see God and we withdraw from God's people, we become very vulnerable indeed. And like David, we become open to making some pretty stupid choices. And so he says, the best thing I can do is to go off to the Philistines. And so he defects and he hands himself over to them. He leads his men right into the, hand, to the land, quite literally, of idols, making his home in what was Goliath's old stomping ground of Gath. It was actually the village that Goliath came from. Can you believe it? That David would end up there. This young shepherd boy, so full of God, so full of faith in what God could do against Goliath, has now lost sight of God and stopped listening to others. So David and 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Mah- uh, Mahoch, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Ashish. And there he becomes a servant of a foreign god. And all of this leads to duplicity, and you can read all about it, compromise. David loses the trust of the people. His wives and children get attacked. His village gets burnt to the ground and all the rest of it. The men turn on him. It's, it's the most painful lesson probably of David's life, or one at least one of the most painful lessons of David's life. 
He's lost sight of God. He's shut out God's people. And he ends up trapped by the enemy. Does that ring any bells? We think about the lessons that God's word is teaching us. He ends up ensnared by the enemy. It wasn't the end of the story, of course. David was going to learn from this bitter experience. And he was going to listen carefully again to God. And in two chapters, you'll see he becomes king. But it's quite a long time before that happens. So what are we learning? What did David learn? Well, um, David was uh, learning in that bitter experience that we all need a guide. If we're going to navigate our way through the choices of life well, we all need a guide. David had been paralyzed by indecision and made the wrong choice. We all, like sheep, <laughs> have gone astray. We all need that orientation of God's voice in our lives. And what's the posture of that? The posture of always being open, both to God and to what God might say through other people, is that of humility. The moment we end up like David, I will think to myself. I will sort this out myself. I will do this my way. The moment we move into being like I am on my own and we're no longer referencing God, then we step into that enemy place. Then we step into that place where we become trapped and ensnared. We need a shepherd. The trouble is, you see, there are sometimes ways that seem right. But where do the ways that seem right sometimes end up? But in the end, it leads to death. But there is this wonderful promise. The wonderful promise that as we adopt a posture that says, in my life, I cannot move, I cannot decide... I cannot make decisions without reference to God. It says he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. So if firstly we admit that we need a guide, that we, we have this posture that says, I, I, I need to reference all that I am and all that I choose and whatever I do in the light of what God says, then we need to develop a listening heart. That posture of humility pushes me towards having an open heart towards God. And you see, that was the secret in so many ways of David's success, which is why the failure that we've just talked about is in such stark contrast. It it sticks out like a sore thumb in the midst of the story. It's a juxtaposition. It's a, it's a, it's a great to what we, we, um, it grates on what we know of him. 
You see, David had a worshipping heart and from his earliest days he would sing and compose and play worship psalms and worship songs to, to God. And as we know, so many of the psalms that we have in the Bible, open the book, the Bible just in the middle, just off to the left, you get the book of Psalms, 150 of them, all worship songs about life and the way God meets us in our reality and in our experience, most of them written by David. And if you've got your Bible open and you flick to chapter 22 of 2 Samuel, there's a, there's a typical psalm, a typical song, a, a, a typical worship moment when David just bursts into song and 2 Samuel uh, chapter 22 and verse 1 following. If you, no time to study that this morning, but in that psalm, in that song, David sings about the Lord being his rock and his fortress and his deliverer and his refuge and his shield. Talks about God being his horn of salvation, his stronghold and his saviour. And that's just the first three verses. And he goes on talking about God being worthy of praise and God being the God that listens, being a rescuing God, a rewarding God, a seeing God, a faithful God and a revealing God. And suddenly this is the David we know, whose mind and heart is full Of who God is. David continues describing God as being shrewd with his enemies and powerful and perfect and pure and flawless. Not to mention God being a giver, gentle, persevering and living. All of that just in one song. I bet they didn't like the tune though. I thought that was funny. Sorry. What can we do about developing a worshipping heart? A heart that's alive with who God is. A heart that's focused through the moments of each day. A heart that wakes up in the morning and sees who he is. That sleeps at night in the confidence of, of who he is. It's that place of connection with God that David can hear his voice. And that's the same for us, isn't it? In our experience, we know that God often speaks in a whisper. We know also that God speaks a lot, if only we would tune in to listen. How do I allow my life to become more receptive, to have that posture of humility, to be more open? It comes from that worshipping place. When our hearts and our lives and our gaze are filled with who he is. So not surprisingly, in the book of Acts, it was while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit did what? The Holy Spirit said something. The Holy Spirit goes, this is a moment that I can speak because I know people will listen. Because their hearts are open, their minds are, are ready and engaged. We need to develop a listening heart. And we could do a lot worse this week than to sit every day with that, those verses of David in uh, chapter 22 of uh, 2 Samuel, where he worships God and, and take those words that David uses and make them as our own. We develop a listening heart through the worship of God, but also through the word of God. You see, there are so many ways that God speaks. I mean, we live in this beautiful creative world, don't we? And God speaks through creation and he speaks through beauty. And he speaks through pictures and images and words. He speaks through films and novels and stories. He speaks through moments and experiences. God is speaking all of the time. Your word is a lamp 
to my feet and a light to my path. Why? Because actually one of the fears that people have had is as we, as we look to God to speak, we become disengaged from God's word. But in fact, the opposite happens. As we begin to open our minds and our hearts to, to what God wants to say to us through all the ways that God speaks, we become more rooted and more anchored in his word. And his word becomes more alive to us because we become increasingly hungry. For what he has to say. And we know that he says nothing that isn't ultimately rooted and contained within his word. And so instead of being these people full of choice, tossed about, should I go this way or should I go that way? Should I make this choice or that choice? We become, as the psalmist describes, like a tree that's planted by streams of water. Planted, rooted, solid, life-giving water flowing from within us that allows our fruit, the fruit that God has for us to yield in season and whatever they do prospers in God's kingdom purpose. Would you like to be anchored like that? Centered like that? Rooted like that? That's the invitation of Psalm 23. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We develop a listening heart, thirdly, through the people of God. Through the people of God. The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. What are you like when it comes to listening to the advice of others? What's that like? What's that like for you? How ready and willing are you to listen to what God has to say through somebody else? How willing, how ready? What's resonating in your heart? One of our danger points, one of our danger points is when we try and interpret what God is saying to us on our own, in isolation without community. And there are constant reminders through the scriptures about this, about, about remember what your leaders say, for example, consider their lives and imitate their faith. But it's not just leaders. It's a, a lifestyle where in community, we let God's word dwell within us richly and we share it with one another. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And we all need friends. I love this verse. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart. And the Pleasantness of one's friends spring from his earnest counsel. It's so important that we listen to what God is saying as we listen to other people. It's one of the mechanisms that God gives us for hearing right. It's one of the mechanisms that God gives us for interpreting what's going on in our lives and what God is saying. In Song of Songs, it's a whole uh, beautiful journey of a relationship with God, but played out in terms of teaching us about intimacy and relationships with one another. Uh, And in my mind, the most important characters in the Song of Songs are the friends. The friends that were there to advise whether the relationship felt right or looked right, whether things were healthy or not, whether it was going well or not. The friends are so important. Who is around you and how much do you listen to them? David had discovered what it was and it it, it gets more intense as you get towards the end of um, sort of middle and beyond of, of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 16 to 19, for example, talks a lot about David's key friends. Having the right people around you, 
listen to what God says through them becomes super important. Admit we need a guide, developing a listening heart. Third prerequisite is a posture of submission. Will we trust our guide? I don't know about you, but one one of the ways I know I'm on the edge is when I'm choosing not to listen to God because I think I know what he's going to say and I'm not sure I want to hear it. Is that just me? Thanks. Have you ever been in that place? Do you know what? Actually, I'm not really sure I want to dig into what God has to say because I actually I'm not sure I want to do what he says. The posture is of submission, of trust. Will we trust our guide? True, the sat-nav has sometimes taken us into a cul-de-sac where the kids were expecting to find McDonald's or the wrong way down a one-way street. But in the end, will we trust our guide? The very next account of David is one of incredible submission in the light of what God had to say. You see, soon after all that we read about, Saul died. And we know that from a teenager, David had been chosen to be king. He's now about 30 years of age, so he's had quite a heck of a wait from that perspective. And you might have expected David at that moment, with good reason, to rush to Jerusalem and make himself king. Because, of course, that's what God had said a decade or more ago. But he doesn't. It seems like these painful days of ending up ensnared and trapped by the enemy has taught him a thing or two. Maybe he's even paranoid now about hearing God speak first. Maybe that's not a bad thing. So he asks God what he should do. And this is what God says. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? I.e., shall I go to Jerusalem? The Lord said, go up, David asked. Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. Hebron was a nothing place. Hebron was just a small village, inconsequential in so many ways. And David went there and he stayed there. But he might have fought against God. He might have thought that he'd misheard because it just didn't seem or feel right. But actually what David did, quietly and humbly, he went to Hebron and he stayed there for seven years and six months, to be precise. Even though he lived with the promise that God said he would be king. And as he stayed in Hebron for all those years, Jerusalem, the Bible tells us, was getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So the likelihood of the promise coming true seemed to be fading by the day, by the month, by the year. Have you ever had a promise from God and the longer it goes on, the more that promise feels like it's fading? That's David's story. The longer he waits where he believes God has told him to wait, the less like, it's like Abraham and Sarah, isn't it? You're going to have a baby and, and, and months turn into years, turn into decades and still they haven't had a child. But still David waits. Patiently, because that's what God has asked of him. He's learned something altogether different. And then some of his 
fellow countrymen arrive. And they say to David, now is the time for you to be king. But it almost seemed too late. You see, you will not get in to Jerusalem. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off now. Jerusalem is so powerful, you'll never be able to overcome them or conquer that city. You've left it too late, mate. You sat on your laurels. And then these wonderful words. 2 Samuel 5 verse 7. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. Whatever the circumstances say, whatever human beings without faith have to say, nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, of Jerusalem, the city of David. We need some neverthelesses in our lives, don't we? God's made this promise and it looks like it's fading. Nevertheless, God is faithful. Nevertheless, God can still do it. Nevertheless, God doesn't let his word go unfulfilled. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. That's a terrific verse, isn't it? Think about that for a moment. The path of the righteous, that invitation for God to be our guide, that invitation to only live our lives as they are centered on him. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. Let's be quiet for a moment.